0: We are going to have a message. I'm not going to disappoint you. (laughs) And as I mentioned, as we celebrate Independence Day, this week, the independence of our country, the freedom that we have in our country that seems to be fast waning, fast being taken away from us on many fronts. The security we have is that Although we may someday lose the freedom we have in our country to freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom to assemble, the freedoms that are guaranteed in our Constitution, the freedom that we have in Christ can never be taken away from us. And it's because God loves us and He sacrificed His Son on the cross for us that we have this freedom in Him. When we went through Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, we saw You know, how much we've been given in Christ and how much God has done for us, not just in our lives, but all around us, providing us really the access to all of God's power, all of God's riches, all of God's blessing through Christ. And, you know, when we think of that, no matter what's taken away from us on this earth, no matter how much we are put in bondage on this earth, we still can celebrate the freedom that we have in Christ. And it's because of God's love. Here's one thing that, we wanna, that I want to uh, make us aware of. Too often in Christian circles and in churches as believers, we tend to think of our freedom or define our freedom even spiritually according to what the world defines as political freedom. Our political freedom guarantees certain rights to us in our Constitution. And yet that's not what we have in what we call Christian liberty. True liberty is not to do what we want, in a sense. It is, but it isn't. And I'll explain that in a minute. Okay? But it's, we, we think about the freedom we have in this country, the freedom to think different things. And everybody has a right to say what they think. That's our freedom of speech. And, I, and there's nothing wrong with that. Except as Christians, not only do we get that freedom in our political structure, by the Constitution, to say what we think we then have guidelines from God to say things in love. So everything has to be guided by God's rule of love. We think of the freedom that we have in the Declaration of Independence. It tells us that all men are created equal, and therefore we all have the similar opportunity to pursue happiness in our lives. And we are guaranteed that in those documents. And yet in the Bible, as believers, what we see is that as Christians and as followers of God. Our life is not about pursuing our own happiness. It's about pleasing God. And so our freedom then again is governed by God's, if you will, regulation or God's uh, guiding hand and God's standard for what our, our lives should be. Even as we talk about worship, our constitution guarantees us, at least to this point, the freedom to worship as we choose. And that's why we have such a diverse representation of religions and different ideas, religious ideas in our country. And that's okay politically. And yet, as believers, we know there's only one true God. There's only one way to that God. And so therefore, even as we love others, we can't tolerate or accept other so-called truths about who God is and how to get to Him. So we don't have a freedom to think in our religion, or freedom even to worship as we please. The Bible tells us that we are to worship in spirit and in truth in John chapter 4. In Psalm 96, the Bible says that we're supposed to worship in the beauty of holiness. So God's even set guidelines on our worship. It's not worship as you please or come to me as you please. God says, okay, you are free in me, but as you are free in me, there's certain things you have to follow. And so true biblical freedom in Christ is not based on what we want or what we think. It's based on what God has declared. So think of it this way. Our liberty in Christ is not the freedom to do what we want in our Christian lives. The freedom in Christ that we have is the freedom to do what is right according to God. And there's a big difference there. Unfortunately, our political system has gotten away from that. I believe the principles that it was founded on centered there that we were to follow God, we acknowledge Him as our leader, as our guide, as our provider, as our creator. And yet, in our lives, we move away from that, especially politically today. And So liberty, defined in the political realm, is different than what we see or what we can define liberty in the biblical realm. But I want to define it as liberty, true liberty, is the freedom to do what is right according to God, not according to me. So spiritually, what we find in the freedom and being saved through faith in Christ Jesus is that we don't get to choose really anything. Our freedom in Christ is not about choosing what we want or choosing to please ourselves or choosing to live by our preferences or our opinions. That's not what God defines as freedom. What we see is that we can't choose how to be saved. God defined that. We can't choose another way to come to Him. We can't choose another God to worship or another way to worship God. We can't choose different ways to live our lives. We're to live in truth and in love. And so in freedom in Christ, it is very strictly defined by God. And as Paul puts it, he says basically, the freedom we have in Christ is the freedom to become a slave to God rather than a slave to sin. And that's true freedom. It's the freedom to do what's right. After salvation, we don't have liberty to choose how we live. 1 John 4 says to love your brother. Now, do we, have a choose, do we get to choose who we get to love? Well, that says love your brother. But what did Christ say in Matthew? Love your enemies. So who's, out, who's left out of that? Nobody. So when God says, you, are, you, you have freedom. You have freedom in me, and you have the freedom to love everyone. Now I'm going to explain how that works, that although we're slaves and we're bound to the law of God as slaves to Him, we still have absolute freedom in Christ because we're not bound to sin anymore. So when we talk about freedom being choices, politically that may be true in our country as we live our lives and express ourselves and worship and all of that. But in our spiritual lives, our freedom is not defined by our preference or our opinion or what I want to do. Our freedom in Christ is totally defined By what we have in Christ and what God's expectation of us is as His children. And that's true freedom. Think about what I mean, if you if you were to walk up to the average Christian and say, okay, what is the Christian life all about? Define the Christian life for me. What does it mean to be free in Christ? You know, many people today would take that idea of liberty or freedom in Christ and say, Well, well, you know, I'm free from sin, I'm free from the bondage of the law, and and that's true. Which means, therefore that I get to choose a lot of things in my life. God loves me, God saved me, I'm going to heaven, but he's kind of, look, look at all this choice I've got to make now. And that's not necessarily what freedom in Christ is all about. So what the Bible calls liberty in Christ is actually a very specific lifestyle that's defined by God. And so we don't have the options to choose like we think we do. Now there is some choice. We come to Christ. By faith in him. God gives us that choice So we're going to love him and return the love that he's given to us. And if we make that choice to love him, then in loving him, 1 John tells us, we will obey his commands. And his commands are not grievous to those who love him. So what we want to talk about today is this idea of Christian liberty or freedom in Christ and what the Bible says about it. We're going to go specifically to Galatians chapter 5. We've heard the first verse this morning before our last hymn. Galatians, I should go to Galatians and not Ephesians. Okay, Galatians chapter 5 is known about that. Let me give you a real quick background on Galatians 5. Galatians 5 is a response of Paul to people who were in the, church of the churches, there were several small churches in Galatia, and the people in those churches were, had come to Christ, were saved, had understood the truth of the gospel and what Paul had taught them, and then Paul left and moved on, and then very quickly after that, there were some false teachers that came probably from Jerusalem, They were Judaizers, and Judaizers basically were of the idea that in order to be saved, you had to become a Jew again, okay? And they were mandating circumcision specifically, and that you had to keep certain holy days, and that you had to practice the feasts, and that there were certain foods that you could not eat according to the Old Testament dietary laws. And so these people, the Judaizers, were coming in, literally false teachers, and saying, okay, if you really want the promises of God in your life, in salvation, you've got to become a Jew. You've got to live like a Jew. You've got to act like a Jew. It's an outward expression of being a Jew that saves you. And that was the ideas that the Pharisees perpetuated. There were people in the church that were perpetuating the same ideas. And so Paul writes to Galatians, and he sees this false teaching taking effect in the church, and these people all of a sudden who were Christians or who are Christians and believers, all of a sudden feeling like they had to conform to the Jewish customs again in order to to experience God's promises of salvation. And it's interesting, if you look at the other epistles that Paul writes, usually he starts off with a greeting and then he explains who he is and then he touches on some things. and, And in fact, every other epistle that he wrote, he had somebody write it for him as he dictated it. This one he wrote himself. And as I studied through uh, different commentaries, and you look at the attitude of Paul's words here, some of his sentences are very short and very terse. He gets right to the point. So Paul's writing this kind of in a spirit of not necessarily anger, but righteous indignation. And he's coming right at the Galatians, and he's saying, okay, what's wrong with you people? I just left you. I told you exactly what you need to believe. We gave you the gospel. We gave you the scriptures. And now you've already, already, this soon, been deceived into following some other way. And so that's the attitude that he comes at the, at the Galatians with. There were three things that Paul addresses in Galatians. Number one, these false teachers had accused Paul and tried to degrade him in the eyes of the churches in, in Asia Minor as not really an apostle. He had, really hadn't seen Christ. You know, this whole story about the light and falling off a donkey, yeah, that was fun, but that's not what an apostle is. And so for the first section of Galatians, he's defending his authority as an apostle of Christ. The second section, he basically is then trying to reestablish the doctrine of salvation by faith through God's grace, okay? And... He, he was just amazed that these people had all of a sudden decided that, oh, we've got to add works to it. We've got to become Jews. We've got to do all these things in order for salvation to be real. And, and chapters 3 and 4 specifically, he focuses on, no, salvation is by grace through faith alone. There's nothing you need to add to it. You don't have to become a Jew. You don't have to practice the customs. You don't have to keep the holy days. It's about faith. End of story. And that's chapters 3, or three and 4. And when you get to chapter 5, and six, what Paul's saying is this. Okay, when you understand now, you are saved and being part of God's family, you don't have to keep that law anymore. All of those things the Jews did, all of the customs, all of the traditions, all of even circumcision, it's not necessary. Salvation is not about the outward conformity. Salvation is about the inward transformation of the heart. And that's what's important to God. So this is where he's coming from when he writes uh, Galatians. And when we get to Galatians 5, and, and I promise you I'm not going to preach the whole thing and then get to the passage. We're going to read this in just a minute. I'm giving you the introduction to it, okay? David's smiling because he's watching the clock. He knows I'm already 10 minutes in and we just got the introduction here. All right, it, it'll go quickly. There's just some, some things we've got to get down here. So, we have the threefold purpose that he writes. Number one, to reestablish his authority as an apostle. Number two, to reestablish the doctrine of salvation by faith, or by grace through faith. And then number three, to encourage believers to live free from the law in the salvation that God gave them. They didn't need it anymore. So, as we get to Galatians chapter five, and this is where we're going to focus today. Paul addresses the heart of the problem and he defines two wrong mindsets that these people had and tries to correct them. Now I'm going to define both of these with one overall term. We're going to call it Christianity on my own terms. Okay, That's what these people were experiencing. And Paul looks at both extremes of this mindset of I'm redefining Christianity to be what I want it to be. So what we have is the battle here between legalism, which is you must keep the law. There's a set of standards, there's traditions you must keep. And then the other end of that is libertinism. That is, well, I'm free from the law, so therefore I have no restrictions. My Christian life can be whatever I want it to be. And Paul looks at both of these in this, in these chap- in this chapter. Okay, So we've got legalism, which was saying in order to be saved, you must follow tradition. You must outwardly conform. Libertanism basically was saying we're free to interpret Scripture for our own purposes. We're choosing for ourselves what our life will be like regardless of how it affects others around us. Now, if you read the book of Corinthians, there was a lot of that in Corinthians. Okay, But he he talks about that here. So although those two mindsets manifest themselves differently, both are based in a wrong foundation of... Uh, that basically I look at my salvation and I get to define salvation for myself. It's my salvation. I got it from God so I can make it whatever I want it to be. The Pharisees wanted to make it tradition, customs, laws. Then there were the libertines who wanted to make it, hey, you know, God saved us. Anything goes. And Paul says, no, both of them are wrong. Now as you look at the spectrum, you have those two ends, libertinism legalism. So where's the proper place to be? I ask that to people. And the majority of people go, well, you know, it's got to be in the middle. That's wrong. Because the entire scale is built on what I think salvation should be. So it doesn't matter what we think. What matters is what God says. And that's why we're coming to Galatians 5, to fix our thinking and make sure we're calling salvation and living in salvation the way that God wants us to. So we're going to focus on these two points in Galatians 5 this morning, how Paul condemned both of these mindsets, legalism and libertinism, and he's going to help us understand what true liberty or true Christian liberty is according to the scripture. So let's look at Galatians 5, starting at verse 1. He says, "...stand fast therefore in the liberty, wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing." For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Christ is become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. Ye did run well. Who did hinder you that ye should not obey the truth? This persuasion cometh not from him that calleth you. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. I have confidence in you through the Lord that ye will be none otherwise minded. But he that troubleth you shall bear his judgment whosoever he be. And I, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, why do I yet suffer persecution? Then is the offense of the cross ceased. I would they were even cut off which trouble you. For, brethren, ye have been called unto liberty, Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even in this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. But if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have told you in the time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit." Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. Let's take a minute and pray, and then we'll look into this a little further and see what Paul's talking about here. Lord, thank you again for your word. We thank you for the truth that you've given to us in it. Lord, we know that this is your truth. It's absolute truth. There's no question whether it's right or wrong or whether we should follow it. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand what it is you have for us to learn today. Help our minds to be open to the biblical definition of of Christian liberty, and the freedom that we have in Christ, and how we should live because we are your children. Lord, I pray now that you would just remove distractions from us and open our minds and hearts to help us receive your word. Lord, use me as your instrument and your mouthpiece, and may your truth be spoken today so that we can be challenged from you, so that your word might be ingrained upon our hearts, that we might take it and meditate upon it, that it might change us and transform our minds into the thinking of of your truth. And so, Lord, just be with us, guide us during this time. We pray that your presence would be here and that your name would be glorified and exalted. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as we get into Galatians chapter 5, talking about Christian liberty, Paul's addressing again these two extremes. Legalism, libertinism. He starts off with legalism in the beginning of chapter 5. So let me give you the two points, and I'm going to start with the first one about Christian liberty that Paul gives us here in Galatians chapter 5. Number one is this. Christian liberty is the freedom from the bondage of legalistic conformity. Now, it sounds like a lot of big words. Basically, what it means is we don't have to live by the code or the letter of a law anymore. That's been fulfilled in Christ. But Christian liberty is freedom from the bondage of legalistic conformity. Now, there are a lot of churches that I would call Fundamental, conservative, so-called good churches on the outward appearance, okay? The problem is many of these churches are caught up in performance. And that's exactly what Paul is condemning here. Yes, you have to look this way. You have to sound this way. You have to talk this way. You have to, to say things this way. Christians don't do that. And that defines your salvation for them. If you step outside of that, you can't be saved, or you can't be a member of our church, or you can't do this, or you can't be that. No, you don't fit in with the family of God because you're not conforming. Now, I'm not saying that Christians, and we'll get to this in a minute, but I'm not saying that Christians have liberty then to, well, since I don't have to conform, I can do whatever I want. You know, God doesn't care how I live. That's not true either. But anybody, and this is exactly what these Judaizers were doing, anybody who takes the opinion that, well, to be a Christian, your life has to be a certain way, and that will define you as a Christian. No, see, they've got it backwards. That's putting the cart before the horse. The fact that you are a Christian means that God has transformed your heart and transformed your mind, therefore your life will be different. It's not that you become different and that makes you a Christian. That's legalism. Okay, And this is what the Judaizers were trying to do in Galatia. They were saying, in order to really be saved, you've got to be circumcised, number one. Number two, you've got to keep the feast. You've got to keep the holy days. You've got to do all these things that are in the law, in the Old Testament law. And Paul says, no. Christ has fulfilled all that. That was a picture That's not the substance of holiness in order to just performing these things. The substance of holiness is the heart. Remember when when God um, came to Israel, I'm sorry, to Israel, to the prophet of Israel, Samuel, and he said he had just basically deposed Saul as the king, or he was in the process of of putting him out of, of power and taking out his family, and he said, I want, Samuel, I want you to go to the sons of Jesse in Bethlehem, and I want you to pick out the next king. And Samuel went, and the sons of Jesse came out and lined up, and there they all tallest to the smallest except for one, who was the runt out taking care of the sheep, and nobody cared about him. And he came to the first son, and he was big and stocky and strong, and he looked nice, and Samuel said, this must be him. Look, here it is, our next king. And God said to Samuel, no, you've got it all wrong. See, you're looking at the outward appearance. That's how man looks. But what does God look at? The heart. And Samuel went down the line here and he said, this one, this one, this one, this one. And God said, nope, nope, nope. I've rejected all of them. I don't want them. I have one that I've already chosen because of his heart. And we know the story how David was chosen to be the next king of Israel, not because he was the most handsome, not because he was the strongest, not because he commanded a great personality and had lots of friends. It was because his heart was what God wanted it to be. Remember, he was called a man after God's own heart. And so God looks at the heart. And so that's what the Judaizers were missing. It wasn't about the heart for them. It was about the performance and so the problem with the Galatians here that Paul's writing about is that someone had come in, these false teachers, and convinced them that you have to do something else to preserve your salvation, to maintain your salvation. It's not just about faith. You've got to be this. You've got to become a Jew. And Paul calls it a perversion of God's truth. He calls them false teachers, basically, and how he defines them. And the false teachers came in to convince them of something other than what God said. So in verse 8, Paul says this, he says in the scripture, uh, I'm sorry, Um, I changed the page. Verse 8, he says, this persuasion cometh not of him that calleth you. These things that these people are teaching you are not from God. Now, this is not something that was just prevalent in Galatia, okay, This was something that was happening throughout a lot of the churches. It has happened throughout history. It still happens today. People will say, in order for you to really be saved, you have to dress this way to go to church. In order for you to be saved, your hair has to be this long. It has to look this way. You have to say these words. You have to sing these songs. That's what defines you as a Christian that is legalism now let me give you a very easy kind of loose definition of legalism okay in salvation it's imposing anything other than faith in christ that's all that the bible says is necessary true faith in christ that's what brings us to salvation it's not trying to, get, to live our lives good enough so that God can accept us. We're good enough in his sight. So God says, yeah, okay, he's a good one, I'll pick him. It's not about trying to pay back. Well, I did all these bad things, so now I've got to do all these good things. This is what the world believes. In fact, every false religion on earth, this is the premise. Every false religion. Somehow I have offended whatever God may be ruling over me and now I've got to make it up to Him some way. That's legalism. So it's not just the churches of Christianity that are suffering this and it's not something that comes from God. Paul says in verse 8, this is the tool of Satan to destroy people, to lead them from the truth. It happens in every false religion and I say every false religion because what we call Christianity that is governed by legalism is a false religion. Religion has nothing true religion has nothing to do with our performance. You can try to pretend and be and present to everybody the best Christian face and the best Christian activity and the best Christian posture and all of the good stuff that you're supposed to do to be a good Christian and God can look at you and reject you because your heart is in the wrong place. In fact, The fact that you are trying to perform in order to please God, to make him accept you, and to be good enough in his sight, probably means that you're not saved. Because your faith is in your performance rather than what Christ did. Now, all of that to say that's the problem that was happening in, in Galatia. So outward conformity or legalism does nothing but guarantee that you're not saved. Because you can't get saved through works. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, I won't go there, but the verse basically says that the sacrifices or the continual practice of the law cannot atone for sin. It can't guarantee us salvation because the law has been fulfilled in Christ. Those sacrifices basically were a picture, they were a shadow of what the promise of God was in Christ. And so if we put all our faith in performing the works of the law and doing these things that I'm supposed to do, then we're basing our, faith or our salvation on a shadow. There's no substance there. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 gives us the answers. By grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's not our works that save us. It's the gift of God. Okay? And then it says, not of works, lest any man should boast. If we could earn it, then salvation is my reward. And that's not what salvation is. It's a free gift of God. So Christian liberty is the freedom from the obligation to conform to a religious system of standards. Our performance does not guarantee our salvation. It does not define our salvation. Our salvation is defined, our freedom in Christ is defined because we are free from the performance or having to conform to some standard in order to be good enough so God will accept us. That's the legalism that Paul references here in Galatians. Okay, now that's through verse twelve. Then he gets to verse thirteen, and he says, "For brethren, I have been called into liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh." So first he condemns this legalistic mindset where you have to conform. Then he condemns the libertinistic mindset or the libertine idea. He says in the middle, "We've been called to liberty." We have freedom in Christ. We don't have to conform to the law anymore. We don't have to use that as our basis of trying to preserve and produce our own righteousness. But then he says this: But in that liberty, in verse 13, don't use liberty for an occasion to the flesh. So here's the second part of it: Here's the libertinism. All right, since I don't have to be conforming to the law, since I'm free from that bondage, now I can do whatever I want, right? Well, he addresses that in Romans 6. Romans 6 is all about the idea of, yes, okay, we've been saved, we've been freed by God's grace, so we're free, right? And in Romans chapter 6 starts out, he says, so because grace abounds, should sin therefore much more abound? God forbid. No, just because we're free doesn't mean we get to do what we want. Because we're free in Christ, now we're free to do what we should in God's eyes. So Christian liberty is the freedom from the bondage of serving self. That's the second point he addresses here. Our Christian liberty is the freedom from the bondage of serving self. I don't have to conform to the law, but now I also do not have the freedom to do whatever I please. Our freedom in Christ is not the liberty to do what we want. And it's not the freedom to live according to my preference or opinion. It's Basically, what would we call pleasing self? I mean, the the basic word for that is lust, right? I'm fulfilling my lust. Whatever I want, whatever feels good, whatever I think gives me pleasure, that's what I'm going to do. And Paul says, no, that's not the way to live either. Freedom doesn't mean you get to fulfill your lust. There's a a rule here that we have to follow. It's not the Old Testament law. But it's not freedom to do anything you want either. In James chapter 1, if you go to James chapter 1 very quickly, I want to look at a few verses in James. James chapter 1, verse 13 through 15. We looked at this a few weeks ago, but Paul, uh, Paul, I'm going to do it again. James, the writer of James, James is saying, and he's talking about sin, but he says, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. This is temptation to sin, not trial. This is temptation to sin. He says, let no man say when he's tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Okay? So, where does temptation start? my fleshly desires. That's the root of it. Now verse 15, when lust hath conceived, it brings forth what? Sin. So where does sin come from? Fulfilling my lust. So let's define sin. Sin then is living according to my lust. Now, if I'm living according to my lust or living for my own pleasure, or let's put it this way, I'm living according to my own preference and my own opinion, I get to choose. So whatever I want goes. Well, you know, I'm going to, of course, I'm going to govern that by scriptural principles. The Bible says don't, I won't. The Bible says do, I will. But anything in between, hey, that's up for grabs, right? No, it's not up for grabs. The Bible's got very specific principles. We are to, to live in holiness. Holiness is defined as what? Well, God is holy. Be holy as God is holy. Is God sinful? So the call for us to be holy means we are to live without sin. And it's possible because as we saw in Ephesians when we studied it, God has given us the power and the Holy Spirit to be able to live without sin. We can't do it on our own, and that's where people fail because they try to perform instead of trust, okay? So the definition of sin then is living to fulfill my lust or living according to my own desires. Anything I do to satisfy myself, that's sin. As believers, who are we supposed to please? God. And that's what he says in Romans. For um, For all have sinned and what? Come short of the glory of God. In other words, sin is anything you do that does not glorify God. And any time you seek to please yourself, then you glorify yourself. Okay, so you get the, the essence of what, what Paul and James are saying here. Look at uh, chapter 4 of James. In verse 3, he says, Ye ask not and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lust. Why do we not have the blessing of God? Why do we not have what we think God's provision should be? Because I look at my life and I say, this is what I want my life to be. This is the things that I want, that I think I should have. And we go to God and say, okay, God, you said to ask you, trusting, and you'll give it to me. How come you're not giving it to me? I'm praying. I'm trusting. I want this. I want a new car. I want a new house. I want lots of friends. I want to be famous. I want money. How come you're not giving it to me? I'm trusting. Because our prayer is totally based on selfishness. That's what James says. And he says, you ask and you have not because you ask." that you may consume it upon your lusts. You're praying to God for Him to let you live in sin. Think about that. Why would God answer that prayer? Romans chapter 13, verse 14. Paul says, But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. You getting the theme here? Romans chapter 6, verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. It's amazing how many times what you, where you see the word lust and sin put together. Okay? If he, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Dearly beloved, by the way, this is not Paul, this is Peter, another apostle. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrim, pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul. Ephesians chapter 2. This is a verse we studied. Among whom also we had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh. Paul told us in Ephesians, this is what you used to be. He says, don't live like the Gentiles because they live to fulfill their lusts. When we're in Christ, that changes. So it's not about performance anymore. Now it's about me. Okay, I don't have to perform. I don't have to do all those things. I don't have to obey rules. I don't have to follow somebody's standards. Now I can do whatever I want. Paul says, no, That's lust, that's as much sin as that is. And so anywhere on that spectrum where you think you can define Christianity or what the Christian life looks like, whether you're in legalism land or total libertinism where everything is free or somewhere in the middle, it's a wrong thinking. Because freedom is not based on what we think or what we have an opinion about. Freedom is based on what God says the Christian life is all about. Now, you want to define what's right as opposed to sin? Sin is anything I think is right. What is right is anything God says is right. In the Old Testament, when the, when, uh, the Israelites went astray and started following false gods, there's a phrase that you see over and over. It says, everyone did that which was right in his own eyes. Christianity according to my terms. It's right in my eyes. The problem with this thinking is that it leads to relative truth. Okay? We can read the Bible and we'll say, well, you know, I see this. And so that means I can do this. That's right for me. It may not be right for you, but it's right for me. And... We say, does God have different standards for different people? One person can live like this, and one person can live like this. I'm not saying God calls us all to the same exact lifestyle and the same calling. Our calling is that we are to be followers of Christ, we're to be his disciples, we're to be little Christ, okay? But our lives are not going to all look the same as far as the exact details. But here's the problem. When we come to the scripture and we say, well, this verse says this, so I think it means that I'm allowed to do all these things. And another person comes to the same verse, and they say, well, I read it a little differently, and I interpret it this way, so I don't see that that's the same. And then we come to the conclusion, well, we'll just have to agree to to disagree. Peter tells us the Scripture is not open to any private interpretation. So when we look at Scripture and say, well, you know, we'll agree that everybody can have their own interpretation of Scripture and their own application. What we're saying is we'll allow relative truth within the church, and look where it's gotten us today. So libertinism basically is based on, I believe in relative truth. What's right for you may not be right for me. What's right for me may not be right for you. And Paul condemns then living in this mindset of sin, literally, whatever's right according to my own eyes, whatever I think is right according to what I want to see in Scripture, because sin is defined as living for myself, go to Second Peter real quickly. I want to show you one thing. Second Peter chapter two, verses eighteen and nineteen. Okay, I already mentioned the false teachers that had come in Judaizers into the church of Galatia. Here Peter is talking about false teachers. In verse eighteen of chapter two, he says, "For when they speak great swelling words of vanity," I'm sorry, Second Peter. I said first, didn't I? Second Peter chapter two. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lust of the flesh. What do false teachers all have in common? They will twist the truth to make it seem like if I do something a little differently or twist the truth just a little bit, then I will get some benefit from it. Like I said, every false religion is based on that premise. Okay, I've I've fallen short, yep, I understand that. The gods are not pleased, whoever that may be. Therefore, I have to earn my favor back. And if I do that, I might get something out of it. It's all about me. And so Peter says, They speak with great swelling words of vanity. They lure through the lust of the flesh, through much wantonness, those that were clean escape from them who live in error. While they promise them liberty... There it is, folks, libertinism. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. So this extreme of libertinism, where I can interpret and apply God's word any way I want to because I'm free in Christ, I'm not bound by the law anymore, is false teaching that appeals to our flesh. And it promises some benefit that we're going to gain for me. And anything that we motivate ourselves to do because I'm going to benefit from it, that's what God defines as sin. Because that glorifies me, not him. So sin, being defied by living for myself or according to my own thinking, is wrong. That's the, de- the essence of libertinism. But since Christ freed us from the bondage of sin, what Paul's saying as we get back to Galatians chapter 5 is this. You're free from the thinking, the bondage of sin that tells you you have to live for yourself, you have to protect yourself, you have to provide for yourself, you have to do everything yourself. That's sin. You've been freed from that. So now you no longer have to live for your flesh. So all the things that please me, I don't have to have. That's what freedom is. I love the way that uh, one pastor put it. He said, true Christian liberty is understanding that you don't have to have everything you have the freedom to have. You don't have to participate in the things that you're allowed to do in order to have freedom. True freedom is being able to give up your rights and all the things that please you So you can do what God wants you to do. That's freedom. But that's the opposite of libertinism. So because Christ freed us from the bondage of sin, Paul's saying you don't have to live to serve yourself anymore. Life doesn't have to be about you. Okay, you're at the opposite end. You think you're free because you're not living in the law, but what you're doing is saying, God, I'm going to live my own life my own way. I don't need your law. I don't need you I can do whatever I want because I'm free, and therefore I can live in abundant sin because God's grace is free, and I'm going to go to heaven anyway. And that's what we see in Romans six, where Paul says, "No, God forbid! Don't let that thinking uh, uh, motivate you." Go to Romans chapter fifteen, because through all of this, obviously, we want to be like Christ. The goal of a Christian life is Christ likeness. In Romans chapter fifteen, Paul tells the Roman. Uh, believers, and this is for all believers, the truth. He says in verse one, we then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to what? Not to please ourselves. Okay, so here's the essence of the Christian life. We ought to bear the infirmities of the weak, not to please ourselves. Verse two, let every one of us please who? His neighbor. For his good to edification. Now here's the example in verse three. For even as Christ Pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that are reproached fell on me. In other words, Christ gave up everything he was entitled to and all the freedom he had so that we might gain something from it. And that is the definition of Christian liberty. We are free to give up whatever we need to give up, even those things we're allowed to do and the things that we enjoy doing because it helps others because I'm seeking their good before my own. So when we apply the Christian principle of Christian liberty to our decisions in what we call gray areas, now okay, nobody wants to talk about those. No, don't go there. Okay, now we're talking about things like how I dress. Well, the Bible doesn't tell me how to dress. It just has to be modest. Uh, it does. There's principles that apply to everything in our life. Here's one of them. Number one, don't please yourself. Because that's not the model that Christ gave us. The way we dress ought to be so that we edify others and please God. Our music. Oh, don't go there. That's personal. Our music is not my preference or what I think is best. Our music should be about what edifies others and what pleases God. Do you see how this principle perpetuates the Christian life or defines the Christian life as it removes me from the equation? It's not about me or what I like or my preferences or what makes me feel good. It is what do I, what am I free to give up that I can enjoy anyway that God has given me? But I'm free to give up what I can enjoy because I'm more concerned about helping another person come closer and draw closer to God than I am about pleasing myself. That's Christian liberty. First Corinthians chapter eight. Go there real quickly. This is the famous chapter, and combined with chapter ten about meat offered to idols. Now, a two-minute dissertation on that. Okay. If you look at the biblical, all of the biblical counsel that ha- talks about meat offered to idols. Paul is not talking in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 10 about meat offered to idols as being an option for a Christian. That was decided in Acts 15. The council of Jerusalem made a list of things, and they said one of the things that Christians in our churches should not do to glorify God is eat meat offered to idols. It was forbidden. Flat out, forbidden. Okay? That was from the council of Jerusalem. All the pastors agreed. All the elders agreed. And so that was a standard that they set for the church from God. Don't eat meat offered idols. So when Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, he's not saying, well, it's an option here. You know, think about it, but think about it. No, what he's saying is what we read this morning, okay? You think you know something. Now, all of us know meat offered idols doesn't change, it's still meat. If you eat it, you'll still get nutrition from it, it'll give you strength you'll grow, you'll live, okay? There's nothing changed about the meat itself. He says, you think you know that. But what was the verse that we read this morning? Knowledge puffeth up. In other words, I can enjoy this because I know there's nothing wrong with it, therefore it will please me and I don't care how it affects anybody else. And that's what he addresses in 1 Corinthians 8 and 10. If you look at verse 9 through 13, he says, But take heed, lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. He's saying this kind of uh, sarcastically. He's saying, you think this is liberty that you can eat meat. You're free to do this. Number one, it's already been condemned and refused by the the council of Jerusalem. So it's not part of what we associate or even approve of as, as far as the Christian life is concerned. But he says... You think this is liberty. So take heed, lest, lest by any means this liberty becomes a stumbling block to somebody who's weak. So there were people who heard the command or may have not heard the command. They thought it was absolutely wrong. Don't touch it. Don't have anything to do with it. And yet there's other believers saying, no, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just meat. You know, they're false gods. They don't exist. Come on, get real. And so they would eat it. They would encourage others to eat it. And these people who thought it was wrong were basically sinning because in the same passage it talks about whatever is not of faith is sin. Keep reading, verse 10. For if any man see, I'm sorry, which any man see thee which has knowledge, sit at me at the idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? And through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? So Here's the scenario. In my Christian liberty, I think I'm free to do this because there's nothing wrong with it. Wait, I shouldn't use that phrase because too many people use that as an excuse. There's nothing wrong with it. And if you use that to defend what you think is good for your Christian liberty, then you are squarely planted in the camp of libertinism. There's nothing wrong with it. It's not the right answer. The right answer is, what does God say is right? Now I'm going to wrap this all up in just a minute, and it all comes down to one overriding principle, OK? Verse 11. Look at what He says, "And through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. But when ye so sin against the brethren, He didn't say, "Oh, I happen to offend them, Oh, I happen to violate their conscience." He defines that. When you cause somebody else to do something or be persuaded into something that they believe is wrong, you cause them to sin and you are sinning against them. Why? Well, I didn't make them do it. That's not the point. The point is, you did it for yourself. Therefore, it automatically becomes sin. So he says, but when you sin so against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, what? You sin against Christ. So you you can take all the specifics, you can take all the scenarios, you can argue back and forth. The basic principle comes down to this: If I do it because it's good for me and I don't care how it affects other people, it is sin in God's eyes. You can't define it any other way because it's all about me at that point. Okay? Now you can put anything you want in this context. The principle is there, and I've had people come up to me and say, "No, the principle is just about me. You can't do me. You know, it's all about me." No. Christ, Paul is talking here about the principle of offending my brother. It's the principle of living for myself and fulfilling my own flesh. And Paul says when you live that way and it offends other people or causes them to, to do something that's against what they believe God says is right, even if they may be a little weak in understanding, you're sinning. Oh, here comes the, the phrase, the tyranny of the, con- tyranny of the weak. Okay? We can't be controlled by the person's weak conscience because they don't understand the Bible. Okay? That's true if you're talking about the gospel and the major doctrines of, of Christianity. If somebody comes up and says, oh, well, you know, to be, a, to be a Christian you have to become a Jew, yeah, that's a weak understanding of the gospel? No, I don't change my view of the gospel because of that. But in something like this, as far as my lifestyle and, and the so-called choices God has given me, remember, Christian liberty is not I'm free to do what I want, or what's allowable even, I'm free to give up what I can do to help somebody else. And so what Paul says, and I'm I'm going to spare you the time just going through the rest of the passage, but what he's saying is this, why, when you've been freed from the law and the bondage of that, you come over here on the other end of the spectrum on the same plane, And now you're choosing to go right back into bondage of serving yourself and not loving other people. He says that's not liberty. That's not what Christian freedom is all about. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And by the way, before you turn, real quickly, look at verse 13 in chapter 8, okay? He says, wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth. In other words, Paul was willing to give up all meat in order to win people to Christ and bring them closer to God. That's Christian liberty, okay? And he lived it out. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. In other words, I might be allowed to do this because God does not condemn it or say don't. It may fit fine within my lifestyle as a Christian, and there's nothing wrong with it. Oh, there's that phrase again. But does it edify other people? Does it bring people closer to God? Does it help them understand who Christ is? Now, you think about that question specifically. As they look at me, do they see Christ in my life? Christ, we saw in Romans 15, did not live to please himself. He gave up everything to help other people. That is the substance of Christian liberty. I am free to give up everything I'm allowed to do, everything I'm allowed to enjoy, to help somebody else. So freedom in Christ gives me the liberty not to have to please myself. And whenever we stand up for our rights, I'm allowed to do this. You can't tell me I can't. You know, I, forget the standards. Don't tell me about standards. I'm going to do whatever I want because it doesn't hurt anybody else. Sorry, that's the wrong answer. And Paul's basically condemning that. He says, no, that is pleasing the flesh. That's self. And that is sin. I'm going to give you one real quick example here. Now I'm going to tread on real thin ice and I'm going to make a lot of people shake in their boots, okay? Tithing. (laughs) Don't talk about giving, okay? That's bad. Tithing is a principle that has been abused on both sides of the coin, pun intended, okay? A very common mindset in many conservative churches is that you must tithe to command. It's very clear in the Old Testament, right? And what is the tithe? How much do you have to give? Everybody knows, right? 10%. Tithe, 10%. Tithe, 10%. I've I've been taught that since I was a little kid. Oh, I got a dollar for my birthday. You should tithe, right? Now, this was part of God's command in the law. When you go back in the Old Testament law, and because of time, we're not going to take all the time to look at it, but do this study. Look at the tithe. The tithe was not 10%. There was a 10% tithe that went to the priests that basically were the government of Israel. There was another 10% tithe that went to support the feasts and the poor people. There was another one-third percent, uh, I'm sorry, 3% tithe that went to the, the year of Jubilee and some other things, okay? So God actually mandated of the children of Israel 23, 20, about 23.5%, three and a half percent, twenty three and a third percent of their income, of everything they had. This was to be given, 10% to the priest, 10% for this, 10, 3% for that. It was basically 10% every third year the last one, so we make it three percent. But the the real tithe, if you say, well, God required God required twenty three and a third percent of everything Israel had. So why do we not teach the real tithe is twenty three and a third percent? Whoo! I I wouldn't be able to survive on twenty three and a third percent if I gave that much, right? Wait, who am I thinking of when I say that? Wait, is it your money or is it God's money? See the wrong mindset here. So first of all, the 10% tithe is really not biblical. There's no biblical basis for it because it's 23 and a third if you really take all of the tithes together. Second of all, um, I lost my page, that's going to be bad, okay? Second of all, when you get to the New Testament, tithing is really not mentioned except in one or two instances when Christ is talking about the Pharisees and condemning them in their heart attitude. And he says, you tithe in mint and cumin. You do do all these little things. You you count the little pieces of spices that you have down to to the grain so that you can make sure you're giving exactly the amount that's specified in the law. But you're not fulfilling the law of God. You're missing, he says, you're missing the weightier matters of the law. Now, you know the answer to this. When Christ was asked... What's the most important commandment? What is it? Love God with all your heart. And if you love God, you'll love your neighbor. Wait, that's not one, two, three, four. That's not in the ten. No, it's because that's what the ten commandments are built upon, and that's what the entire rest of the law was built upon, that one principle. Go back to Galatians chapter 5. We're going to wrap it up here. Okay, go back to verse 13. For brethren, you have been called unto liberty, only use not liberty for occasion to the flesh or to serve yourself. What's the last phrase? But by love serve one another. There it is. Now, getting back to tithing, why do we give to God at all? Because we have to, that makes us a good Christian. God tells us we have to, right? That's my duty. If I don't, God won't bless me. Eh, sorry, that's a zero. If you put those on your test, that's a zero. Okay? Why do we give to God? Because we love him. End of story. If you don't do that, it doesn't matter what you give or how you give. That's what he told the Pharisees. You're missing the point because you don't love God, you love yourselves. You think by doing this tithing, you're going to earn merit and favor in God's eyes and he's going to reward you. Their whole life was a fraud. We don't tithe because the Bible says we have to give 10% or 23 and a third percent. We don't put money in the offering. We don't help other people because that's what we're supposed to do as a Christian. That's what God expects. That's legalism. We do those things because we love God. That's it. And if you don't love God, then you're a legalist because you're doing those things and you're doing it grudgingly and you know you have to and you really don't want to, but this is going to make me a good Christian and God's going to be happy with me if I do it, so I'll put my money in the offering. And it does us absolutely no good. In fact, it does us harm because we don't love God. And God's not going to reward that. God doesn't reward performance. God looks at the heart. So the proper attitude about giving should be from a foundation of love. And if I love God, how much am I willing to give to Him? Everything, right? He gave everything for me. If I love God, I'm willing to give Him everything. If I love my wife, I'm willing to give up everything. Are you willing to die for somebody? Do you love them? You will be. Well, the Bible says love your enemies, right? Are you willing to die for your enemy? Are you willing to die for the drunk that's laying in the gutter? Are you willing to die for the guy that just cursed you out? If not, then you don't love them. See, it's not that we live a certain way because we have to. It's not that we live a certain way because we're allowed to. The only rule that defines Christian liberty and our freedom in Christ is love. And if I don't live in love, in everything I do, I've just stepped outside of Christian liberty and now I'm either in legalism or libertinism because I'm defining the terms of my own Christianity. So Christianity, or Christian liberty, is really the freedom to fulfill the law. You go, wait, 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 You just said we're free from the law. Christian liberty is the freedom to fulfill the law of Christ. Galatians chapter 6, 2. Turn over one page if you're in Galatians 5. He talks about Christian liberty, then he goes to the application. Galatians 6 2, he says, Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill ye the law of Christ. My life is not about me. My life is because I'm here to help other people. James chapter 1, verse 27, James defines what true religion is all about. What is the Christian life? What is Christian liberty all about? James defines the perfect law of liberty and living in that. And at the end of chapter 1, he says, true religion is this, to care for the widows and the orphans. What, we're supposed to start an orphanage? and A nursing home? That's No, the idea is those are the most outcast people. Those are the most neglected people in society, especially in this day. Okay? He says, you look at the poorest. You look at the worst. You look at the bottom of the barrel, and you love those people. And they can't pay you back. Ever. Because if you love them and they can't pay you back and you still love them, that's real love. I get nothing out of it. If I have an expectation of return, that's not love. That's legalism or libertinism. That's not love. Our liberty is to fulfill the law of Christ, which is the law of love. James chapter 2, verse 12 says, So speak ye and so do as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. In other words, the law of liberty is, am I living in love? Does love define and motivate everything I do? Do I worship God because I love Him, or do I come to church on Sunday because I have to and I've got to make an appearance? Do I put money in the offering because that's what's expected and I've got to do my 10% or it's because I love God and I want to give back to Him what He's blessed me with? Do I help other people because I have to, and that's required of me, and that's a duty of a Christian to love others because that's what the Bible says? Or I can't help loving other people because the love of God so fills me that it overflows to other people. So the new law of Christ is love. Now, we're not free from the law altogether. Because remember, Christ said, the whole law is based on what? Love God, love your neighbor. The Ten Commandments, the first four, how do we love God? The last six, how do we love each other? The whole rest of the law, how do we treat each other if we love them? Why do we sacrifice to God? Because we love Him. Why do we worship a certain way? Because we love Him. See, it's all about love. So all the principles of the law still apply to our lives as Christians. We're not free from the principle of love. And if we think we're free in our Christianity to do what we want and to do what we're allowed to do, and I don't care how it affects other people, we've just stepped outside of the law of Christ and now we are living in sin. So our freedom in Christ is not about what we're allowed to do based on our own preference or our own opinion, or even our own conscience for that matter. And Paul says that. In 1 Corinthians 8, he talks about, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 29, he says, Conscience, I say, not thine own, but the other's conscience is what matters here. Because you love that person and you want what's best for them. Go to Romans 14. We're going to wrap it up here. Romans 14. I'm sorry, I get excited and I preach and I preach and then all of a sudden it's time for lunch. Okay? You're right, David. I went a little too long. All right, Romans 14, verse 15. He says, But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably. I think I could stop there, okay? I can just stop right there. The the rest of the passage talks about this. But he says, If your brother be grieved with your meat, you don't walk in love. I'm going to choose to do something that I know offends somebody or that's against what they believe is right and I don't care. That's not love. Going on. He says, Now walkest thou not charitably. Destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. Let not then your good be evil spoken of. What Paul's saying is this. You think it's okay. It's allowed. It's it's according to my conscience. I'm fine with it. But if I cause somebody else to literally sin because they're following my example and they think it's wrong, then you've just destroyed the work of God in their life. Verse 16, Let not your then be good, your good be evil spoken of. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. And that, this is the whole point, folks. This is the whole point. Does our, do our clothes define us as a believer? No. Does our food define us as a believer? No. Does the fact that we may drink wine or alcohol define us as a believer? No. Does the music we listen to define us as a believer? No. Okay? Those are choices we make based on, hopefully, our convictions from the principles of God's word that we've sought him in to seek what God wants for our lives. Now, we've got those principles, now enters the principle of Christian liberty. In our minds, we go, I've studied, I've prayed, God's allowed me to do this, I have no problem with it at all. According to the Bible, this is fine for me, but that person over there is offended by it. So because I'm free in Christ, I don't have to do these things at all. That's Christian liberty. If we say, I have to have my rights, I've proven this is. there's nothing wrong with it, I've proven, I've shown you, I've argued with you, I've told you over and over and over, nothing in the Bible forbids this, so I'm going to do it and I don't care how it affects other people. We've sinned because we're not living in love. Conscience, I say, not thine own, but of the other. Verse 17 in Romans 14, For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. For he that in these things serveth Christ is acceptable to God and approved to men. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify another. For meat destroy not the work of God. So here's the question. In Christian liberty, what are we allowed to do that we're willing to give up to help somebody else come closer to Christ? Do we have to stand and defend our rights so loudly and so hard that we end up hurting other people and dragging them into sin because we're allowed and we want to do this. And Paul says, that's not Christian liberty. You're, you're in sin. Use not your liberty for an occasion to the flesh to serve yourself. Scripture's clear about what true freedom in Christ is all about. It's about serving others in love. End of story. And what am I allowed what what am I willing to give up to do that? That I'm allowed to do. James chapter one, verse twenty one through twenty seven. I'm going to finish with this. Wherefore lay apart all filthiness, superfluity of naughtiness. Naughtiness is basically self serving, okay? Self pleasure. Receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls but be ye doers of the word. And not what? Not hearers only. And he says, if you're a doer, and not just a hearer, that's a real believer. He says, if you're a hearer, and not a doer, you've deceived yourself. Verse 23, For if any be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he's likened to a man, beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself, goeth his way, and straight forth forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the, what? Perfect law of liberty. And continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. If any man seem to be religious, and bridleth not his tongue. In context, if you think you're allowed and all you can do is argue and defend yourself, He deceives his own heart. This man's religion is in vain. You cannot be a believer, a follower of Christ and continue to defend your right to do something because it's allowed and I don't care how it offends or affects anybody else because that's not the law of Christ. And then James says, Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Love and holiness. There's the Christian life in two words. Love toward others, holiness before God. Now, part two of the message is the holiness part, okay? Okay. That's like 12 weeks. We won't do that today. But here's the challenge. Are you a doer of the word? Are you ready to sacrifice your desires and preferences for the good of others as you exercise true spiritual liberty? Or are you going to deceive yourself into living a vain religion? I'm using the Bible's terms, by the way. Are you going to deceive yourself into living a vain religion of personal preference and allowance with a because-I-can attitude, neglecting the law of Christ in your life with apathy about how your life affects other people. We are absolutely and totally responsible for how everything we do affects others. That's what the Bible says. Because if we love others, then everything we do, every part of our lives, will be for the purpose of glorifying God and edifying other people. And since the Holy Spirit has empowered us to live in love toward another, then we should have nothing to worry about as far as whether we're living truly in liberty or not, the way Christ defines it. Because God has enabled us to live without sin. God has enabled us to love like he loves, the only thing that's keeping us back from that is there's nothing wrong with it. I want to do it. I like it. And I don't care about other people. It doesn't matter whether you're a legalist, observing laws and traditions to define your your religion, or whether you're a libertarianist, making free choices because you can, if you don't care about other people and everything's not motivated because of your love for God, then you're totally outside of what Paul says is freedom in Christ. You are still in bondage to Christianity on my own terms. Are we going to be doers or are we just going to be hearers? That's the question. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is true, and there are many times in our lives as we see the principles that you teach us that it challenges us. And Lord, this one's hard because this touches us in very personal areas of our lives that we don't necessarily want to give up and we don't see anything wrong with things. And yet, that's not the point. The point is does it please you and does it help other people? That's the law of love that we've seen in Christ. And that's the law law of love that you want us to live in, that you've grafted us into your family to represent on this earth. So Lord, as believers and in this church, I pray that you would convict us of those areas that we're holding on to, that we can't let go of, because it's pleasing to myself, because it's all about me. Lord, help us to sacrifice ourselves, to give those things up, in order to help other people, to bring them closer to you, to edify them in the truth of your word, to be the example that Christ was on this earth, giving up everything and making himself of no reputation so that he could draw others closer to you. Lord, thank you for teaching us. I pray that you would help this to stay in our minds, help us to meditate on this and how we can practice this on a regular basis. And Lord, as a church, I pray that you would just show us how we can manifest this in our outreach to others how we can live this in our lives as, a, as a, a, a group here so that you're glorified in it and so that people are drawn to you. That's our purpose. That's our goal. So we just ask you to, to lead us in that. Thank you again for this time. I pray that you would just be glorified as we continue our worship, as we, look, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, the sacrifice that Christ gave, rejoicing in the salvation that you have given us and the freedom that we do have in Christ. Lord, we just bless you and praise you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.